Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. God bless you. Good morning. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, MIP is COVID free. Free meaning you don't need a subscription to MIP every day now for a limited time. While we endure this pandemic, we want to make it available to everyone. So wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, MIP is COVID free and available to you and everyone without a subscription. ladies and gentlemen a lot of conversation about what we're going to do about the collection of data during this pandemic demographic data including race and ethnicity how are we going to address that and then of course what are we going to do to uh, better serve and compensate the heroes that are the frontline and essential workers involved in this pandemic my guest today is one who definitely represents the working class and the middle class, probably one of the leading elected officials in that regard, and also representing a very important state of working class folk, the state of Ohio. He is the senator from Ohio. Senator Sherrod Brown joins us now on Make It Plain. 
Senator Brown, I, I trust you and yep. yours are, are faring as best you can in this pandemic. Yep, and I, you know, I uh, thank you, Reverend Thompson. I know you're working at home, and uh, I'm one of the people that gets to work at home and still get paid. And you know, so much of this pandemic is exposed. Uh, it's certainly exposed the racial disparities in this country, as if most of us didn't know it. But a lot of people weren't paying attention to the disparities in health and housing, and 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 so much else, income and so much else. Um, but I also you know, the, the, so many of the people that are in the workplace every day are generally moderate wage and low wage earners that are ex, that are getting exposed to this. And so often their employers haven't given them the masks and the protections they ought to have and the pay they've earned. I mean, you're making $14 an hour and then you go home after stat working in a grocery store all day, you go home and you might expose your family. You just don't know. And um, we've got to pay a lot more attention to that in this country. As a matter of fact, um, these workers are really risking their lives every day. Um, yeah. Think about so that. Pay, That's exactly they? right. Yep. And they, these are, think who they are. They're, they're bus drivers in the city that you live in. Uh, literally a couple thousand bus drivers in New York City have already been diagnosed positive. There have been 25 or 30 the last time I heard from the, from the union, the bus drivers around the country that have died there. They're the people that do the laundry at hospitals. They're the they're the um, the security and custodial and food service people that are always left out of, of decent pay and, and benefits. They're the the, the grocery store um, the shelf the shelf stocker at the local grocery store. If they have a union, they're likely to have more protection and maybe a little better pay than if they're non-union. But they're the people that, as you say, they risk their lives. They they have the anxiety of knowing at work that they could get exposed. And then they have the anxiety of going home to their children who probably are home from school. Uh, not, not well, they are, they're not in school and uh, thinking about exposing their children. And so these are, these are people that have to work. They don't have a choice. Um, they can't work at home and they can't go without the pay. So um, and we, we just don't, we just don't pay. We just don't pay attention to workers in this country. And the, most of these workers, they're more likely women than men, and a higher percentage of them are people of color. We know that in these kinds of jobs. Where the legislation that you've introduced, the Heroes Fund, where is that in in the process in the Senate? Well, we're talking about it a lot. We're pushing to get it. Whereas the United States doesn't seem to be interested. Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader of the Senate, has not supported it yet. Um, I'm just hoping that these workers are able to, um, to have the bill you know, that they're a lot. So some of them are union and they're able to to um, have a louder voice with Mitch McConnell or in Congress than if they're not in the union. These workers are so busy, they don't really have time to lobby their members of Congress. But we, you know, we're their, we're their voice. This show is their voice and I'm their voice in Ohio and across the country speaking out for workers and for labor. And um, we just got to keep the pressure on. Uh, to get something, we, we we are saying our bill says that that hourly wage earners that are that are frontline workers and these are not they're certainly people that work in hospitals they're the most the most exposed but also the others we talked about the bus drivers the security guards the the, the custodial workers and the and the grocery store workers and drugstore workers and all they are we we are advocating they get up to a twenty five thousand dollar bonus. Um, because they're they're making twelve dollars an hour, fourteen dollars an hour. That's just not right in a situation like this. Yeah, 
uh, and we've been hearing about some of the, the, the uh, public transportation workers here, especially even those on the subway here in New York, uh, and the dangers they find themselves in. Um, it, it, are, are there any other, any other legislators on the other side of the aisle that seem amenable that you've been able to find yet? Well, we, we don't have them yet, but we're going to keep working on them. I mean, I, I, I hope that they're my, my favorite, my favorite Abraham Lincoln line was he was in the White House and his staff said, stay in the White House and free the slaves and win the war and preserve the union. He said, no, I got to go out and get my public opinion baths. And, you know, he meant I want to go out and listen to people. You can't do that the same way right now during this pandemic. But if, if, if my Republican colleagues are spending any time on the phone like I am talking to people who are, you know, they, they may work at a food bank. They may be somebody that's it's a bus driver. They may be a grocery store worker union. I mean, if they're talking to anybody, they're hearing this. And if they have any compassion, I mean, understanding the president has no empathy or compassion for anybody but himself. But if they have any compassion or empathy, they've got to be hearing that these workers have subjected themselves to this and get so little in return. And for us to just, and I've heard of my Republican colleagues, thank these workers. Well, thanks is great, but protective equipment is more important and the pandemic bonus day is more important. Yeah, yeah. Um, also on the legislation to gather demographic data. I mean, that's important now, but it also would be important as we go forward to talk about future testing, trying to prevent another lockdown again in the fall. You know, all of this would, would give us more information about who's really being affected, um, who's being infected, who's spreading it, all of that would Absolutely. Senator Warren from, from Massachusetts and Senator Kamala Harris from California and I have legislation to, um, to, 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 to order Secretary of Health and Human Services to gather this information from hospitals, from clinics, from homeless shelters, from health departments, wherever, we, wherever they can get it. They know how to do it if they choose to do it so that we know the demographics of this. We, you know, we, we, we know that the virus hits people of color more um, and we know that it hits, it's, it's, it hits, I mean, it's, it's most likely in places where health outcomes have not been as good. And this is, I mean, this, this pandemic has shown a bright light on something that, that many of us already knew. You certainly do Reverend Thompson and your advocacy. And I know about it, that, that, that health disparities in this country are just, are just absolutely inexcusable still. It's housing disparities, it's health disparities, it's, it's income disparities, it's wealth accumulation disparities. And if anything comes, comes out of the pandemic, that's good. I hope it's that we actually start paying attention as a nation to these health disparities and start doing something about them. You know, you can trace the how, for instance, you can trace housing disparity back to Jim Crow and then redlining. Redlining is sort of a kind of Jim Crow. And you end up, you end up with people of color, especially in substandard housing. They can't pass wealth down to the next generation because of housing discrimination, and it affects their health. It affects their health because of their neighborhoods, because of the quality of air and water in their neighborhoods, all those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. A lot of things that were already baked in before the pandemic hit. It's as if the pandemic started for those with, with health disparities decades ago. Um, yeah, and one prepared. decades ago. <laughs> Yeah, go back to yeah. the days of slavery. I mean, it really never, it never, it, it improved. I don't say it never improved, but it, 
it was right. baked in and, and it's up to us. Maybe this generation, maybe the, maybe the COVID-19 generation that's coming out of school now is going to really organize and start to, I mean, it's the most diverse generation we know we've ever seen in this country. Um, and you know, the baby boomers haven't fixed it. And, and we look to the millennials and generation Z to figure this out. So I'll ask the same question, although I fear I may already know the answer. Any indication that the majority leader or anybody on his side of the aisle is going to support the gathering of this demographic data and, and racial and ethnic data? Um, yeah, I think there's a, ch- a better chance for that. Yeah, because I, I mean, how do you, I was going to say, sorry, I was going to say, Reverend Thompson, how do you argue against science? But then again, this president argues against science all the time. Uh, with right. climate change and so much else. So, um, I, I mean, you always should want more information, not less. You should want more statistics about human beings that would help us in the next night. I don't even think of the next pandemic. I just think of the day-to-day, how we live. Right. My, my wife and I live in Cleveland in zip code 44105. And um, my zip code in 2007 had more foreclosures than any zip code in the United States. And mm. the remnants of that are still there. It means less opportunity if you grow up in this zip code, especially if you're a young black man. It means that the water, the, 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 there's more likely you're going to inhale lead from paint in your old home. Uh, you're, oh, there, there's just more, there are more things that can go wrong in the zip code than in most of the zip codes in the country. And um, that, that, that's everything about gathering this data and knowing more. And pers- he goes, Part of gathering the data is not just knowing more, it's, it's showing the public this is very real. I mean, the public is seeing, people that don't think about this much are seeing, my God, look at the percentage of African-American deaths in Louisiana, 70% of the deaths from coronavirus are African-American. In Ohio, it's almost twice the average. Ohio's 20, 12% black, it's about 20% of the deaths. It might be 20% of the illnesses, it's comparable to the deaths. I mean, so how, how do we not pay attention to something like that? But that's, that's yeah. the story of, of that. I mean, that's the story about disparities in healthcare. It's the same number of, that die from the same disparity for infant mortality, for maternal mortality, for lead poisoning, for, for everything. It's not just coronavirus, of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, Senator Brown, we appreciate what you're doing, um, and uh, thank you for this. When, so what's the schedule now? When are you all going to be back in Washington to deliberate? The House, um, we don't really need to deliberate. We can do all this on the phone. And the, the House has already said it's not coming back. McConnell wants us to come back next week. Uh, frankly, I, I don't think McConnell has a plan. How do you protect the police officers that are coming in on the subway? or a bus? How do you protect the food service workers that come in? How do you protect my congressional staff? I mean, I can get there in a car. I can be mostly safe. But how, how do you, why do you explain the D.C., Virginia, and Maryland have said they're, they, they've said there should be a lockdown. Um, how do you argue that we should put all these people at risk by going back to town so Mitch McConnell can, can, can vote for more judges? That's, that's predominantly what he wants to do. If he wants to pass another coronavirus bill, we want to do it. We're eager. Let's start the negotiations today. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Senator Brown. Well, we thank you. God bless you and your family. I pray that you all will continue to remain safe and healthy. Okay. And you too, Reverend Thompson. Thanks for your service. Yeah. All right. Thank you too, man. All right.
gentlemen, it's an honor to have my guest today. He's from Arkansas. He began his undergraduate studies at Harvard University, and he was selected as the first African-American Rhodes Scholar from Arkansas in 1978. He graduated from Harvard, magna cum laude. Uh, he enrolled in Oxford University and got a PhD in immunology. He has been involved in research on HIV and, A and AIDS and since 1986, and his research has been funded through NIH grants for almost two decades. He currently serves as the 12th president of Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee, where as many of you know, I grew up. We're honored to have with us Dr. James K. Hildreth from Nashville and at Meharry. Dr. Hildreth, how are you today? I'm very well, Mark, and thank you for having me today. Happy yep. to be of course, it is a pleasure to have you. Well, first of all, um, I trust that, that you and yours are, are doing as well as can be expected in this pandemic and are safe, correct? Yes, we are. And my wife and I are sheltering in place. My son and daughter are doing the same. So we're all doing very well. Thank you. That's good. Uh, how are things in um, at Meharry? I know you all have been involved in mobile testing. How's that effort going? So our assessment center is going very well. Our, our center is one of three that's testing citizens here in Nashville. We're part of the city's effort and uh, the testing is going very well. Uh, we're up to 200 or more uh, cars per day or people per day at our assessment center. Uh, most of the people we're testing are African-American from the North Nashville community. And we're excited about that. So the testing is going very well. Is, is the... Um, is the testing the amount of testing? Are, are you a, are you comfortable with that? I know the national conversation is that there's not enough testing going on. There's I, not, I'm sorry. Go ahead. There is not enough testing going on. You know, uh, we've done about somewhere between four and five million tests total in the United States so far, which, as you know, is only a fraction of the population. Um, in order to get a handle on the virus and get ahead of the virus, we need to be doing an order of magnitude more testing. The estimates vary between, you know, half a million a day to two million a day total in the, in the country, but it needs to be at that level for us to really understand how widespread the virus is. But it's not just the testing, we need contact tracers to identify all those who've been in contact with the positives so we can have those folks quarantined. And if we're able to do that, we really could put the pandemic largely behind us, but we can't do that unless we have testing, contact tracing, quarantine, and treatment. Those are the things that we need. Dr. Hildreth, have you gotten any signal indication that the United States, or even in the area where you are, where that is actually going to happen or can be planned to happen? Uh, Mark, the, the, the plain and simple truth is that there are not enough supplies yet uh, to make that happen. We are still scrambling to, well, we aren't, but the nation is still scrambling to have an adequate supply of test kits and PPE for the testers and all the other folks involved in this process. So we're not quite ready. We're not quite there yet. As you know, um, governors are having to buy supplies from foreign nations independently of the federal government. Um, it's, it's just not coordinated very well at the moment. But here in Nashville, 
we're okay. We have enough supplies to keep our assessment center going. Um, and we've been given some help from the governor's office in terms of getting supplies. So here in Tennessee, as you know, the, the governor made the decision almost two weeks ago that anyone in the state who wanted to test could be tested and people are taking advantage of it. So I think here in Tennessee, decisions are being made that will be very helpful in putting the, you know, putting this behind us. From your perspective, Dr. Hildreth, why are African-Americans being affected by this so disproportionately? The answer is, can be understood at a biological level, but also at a sociological and political level. The biology is that the COVID-19 virus called SARS-CoV-2, its receptor is found abundantly in the lungs, the GI, the, the intestinal tract, the kidneys, testes, the brain. It's in lots of places in the body. So if your immune system is compromised, and especially if your lungs are compromised by a pre-existing condition, when you get infected by the virus, you will not do very well. And that is why individuals with hypertension, diabetes, um, who smoke, have any other lung condition, those tend to be the ones who will get very sick and many of them will die. <clears throat> and as you know, here in the United States, African-Americans have a disproportionate burden of all of those things. And that is why the virus is killing so many of us. The sociological aspect of that is there are social determinants of health that can be tied to the fact that we have more of those conditions related to living in food deserts, um, not being able to afford access to health care. There are a number of, of sociological reasons that we have the underlying conditions, but it's the underlying conditions that are causing more African-Americans to die. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are your thoughts about the conversations? Well, first of all, what, what's the situation in Nashville and in Tennessee? Some governors want to end these lockdowns. Uh, is that the kind of conversation in, to, in Nashville yet to prematurely end the lockdown or no? No, I think the mayor of Nashville has made a commitment to be guided by uh, data that we're collecting. I'm part of the mayor's uh, COVID-19 task force. And I'm very pleased that our, our mayor has made that decision to be guided by science. But as you know, the governor of Tennessee, Governor Lee, has decided to of the 89 counties that don't have their own health departments, he's allowed those 89 counties to reopen business uh, on, a, on a pretty large scale. So uh, we have a situation now where neighboring counties will have different, different uh, orders in terms of how business can operate. Yeah. And it's a little bit challenging because you know, viruses don't respect borders, neither do people. <laughs> so we're probably going to see some outbreaks related to uh, reopening, um, maybe a little bit prematurely. But here in Nashville, we're taking a different approach. So in terms of what's been happening in Nashville, in terms of numbers, have the numbers been greater or less than you expected, or have they been pretty much where you thought they were going to be? They, based on the actions taken by the Nashville community overall, we were able to to flatten the curve based on the models that were available, both local modeling by Vanderbilt and modeling done by the University of Washington. It 
the data seemed to indicate, well, it does indicate that Nashvilleians were successful in flattening our curve, keeping the numbers relatively flat um, over the last several weeks. Now we've had an increase in cases over the last couple of days, but that wasn't unanticipated. One of the reasons is that we're doing more testing, but even if you average the number of percent increase in cases, it's been relatively constant at about 10%. So I think Nashville has done a great job overall in adhering to the stay-at-home order to keep this keep a surge from happening, unlike you've seen in some other places. Yeah, like like literally what we're experiencing here in New York. And I tell you, it's scary up here being right here in the epicenter, I'll be honest with you. Uh, uh, I, I did consider evacuating to Nashville at one point, but it was too late. Um, but so uh, um, what would be your recommendation, um, really not just to Nashville, but nationally, how much longer, seeing as how we still aren't testing enough people, we still aren't doing contact tracing, how much longer should we really, from a, from a medical point of view, should we continue to be on lockdown? Quite honestly, uh, if, you, if you accept the science of this and you know, the models are pretty compelling, we need to be doing this for several more weeks. Um, and let me add that it needs to be coordinated. It needs to be a nationally coordinated response for the reason I already said that, for example, if New York does a great job of containing the SARS-CoV-2 virus, COVID-19, and the neighboring states don't do it, as soon as you go back to a semi-normal, the virus will simply come back into New York from the surrounding. That to me is why we need a nationally coordinated strategy where we all make the decision that as a nation, we are going to make a sacrifice of staying at home and doing things, doing, not doing things we'd like to do, knowing that if we do it together for a concentrated period of time, we can all go back to a new normal sooner rather than later. And there has to be a new normal. In other words, we need to integrate virus mitigation steps into all the things that we do. In other words, wearing the face coverings, washing our hands, sanitizing the high touch surfaces, protecting our T-zone. We need to incorporate those things into our daily routines until there's a vaccine. And that might take a year. We hope that it will, but it might take longer. The point is the virus isn't going anywhere. You said it might, you might take about a year for the vaccine? It might, in the best case scenario, a year from now, we will have a vaccine for COVID-19. But getting the vaccine is one thing. Producing 300 million, whatever, 340 million doses of it so that all of us can be immunized. And that's what you want. You want, you want everyone to be immune to the virus because then literally the virus has nowhere to go and we'd be rid of it. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, and normally in nature, the way that happens to achieve herd immunity, the virus will just run through a species or a population, and those who remain standing have survived the virus, they're immune to it, and life goes on. Okay. We don't want that to happen, because if we let that happen in the United States, at least 80 million people would be infected by most models, and four to six people would die. But we'd be, we'd, we've gone through it. We, we would, would have gone through, and enough of us would have immunity that the virus would not be a major problem anymore. 
Yeah, to that is the vaccine. So what I'm saying is the virus is going to be with us for some many months to come. And if we want to go back to some semblance of normal, those social activities that we all do, have to incorporate to keep us protected from the virus. And by now, all of us have heard what those are. And I'm just saying that we need to get, we need to come to grips with the fact that that's going to be part of our existence for several months. So even the mask, you know, until there's a vaccine, we should continue to wear masks is what yeah. you're saying. Yes, I'm saying that. I, I, because if it weren't for the fact that there's so many people who are asymptomatic, maybe that would be less necessary. But we know for, for a fact now, it's not speculation, it's a fact that many people who are asymptomatic are transmitting the virus to others. Mm -hmm. And the whole point is that if all of us are wearing a mask, it won't matter whether I'm the infected person wearing the mask or the uninfected person wearing the mask will break the train of chain of transmission. We, we would lower the risk dramatically that the virus will pass from one person to another. But it only works if all of us are wearing a mask, right? Because then we make, it, we make sure that no matter who is the infected person, we can block the chain of transmission and allow us all to get back to, to a new normal sooner. So again, this is one of those things where we have to be all in, otherwise it just not doesn't work as well. Are you and Meharry involved in research on the vaccine? Yes, we are. Well, we're working on a therapeutic at the moment. Um, we have researchers here in infectious diseases is one of our strengths. As you know, I'm a HIV researcher still uh, for 30 some years. Um, we have others who worked on Zika. Uh, you know, we had a little bit of work on, on Ebola indirectly. We have people work on parasites such as trypanosomes. So we have a lot of expertise in, in infectious diseases. So one of our investigators created a compound, a drug that's really effective against Zika virus. So since that's, those viruses share some similarities to coronaviruses, he's been able to change the composition of that compound slightly to make it target the coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2. And so we're now evaluating that compound against the COVID-19 virus. One of the compounds that I've been working on that targets HIV, it turns out that it might have some potential against uh, the COVID-19 virus, given the similarities of how they get into cells. So we're also evaluating that with, uh, with the COVID-19. So we have collaborations with colleagues in Brazil and at NIH uh, in this work. And I'm really excited about it. So yeah. yes, we are doing research. Okay, but, but you think it'll be at least a year before anybody comes up with anything? Well, the vaccine is gonna take at least a year. Now, people need to understand that vaccines take a long time. I mean, the shortest time to getting a vaccine that I'm aware of was for Ebola, and that took seven years. There are vaccines that have taken literally 100 years to produce. Measles, I think, took 40 years. All of the major vaccines that we now enjoy that keep us safe and protected took decades to produce. But as a scientist, I'm excited that now we have supercomputers, big data sets. We can actually model viruses in cyberspace using supercomputers. All of those things 
have meant that we can accelerate some of the processes that used to be done by trial and error. We can now do them in, in silico, in a computer. And to give you an example, the Chinese scientists had sequenced the entire genome of the COVID-19 virus and posted it on the internet so that anybody in the world who wanted to work on the virus could do so. Literally, within, in less than a month, there were at least two companies that had already identified a vaccine candidate and were getting ready to start injecting it into mice just to make sure it made an immune response. This is unheard of. To, to go from a sequence of a virus to vaccine candidates in three weeks or four weeks is just... So that's why we're confident that this vaccine is probably gonna break the record. Yeah. Just because the technology is so amazing. Yeah, well, well thank God for that. Yes, amen. What about the student population at Meharry? I know a lot of our universities have, you know, kids have been sent home. I mean, it's a challenge. What, what's, what's it like at Meharry? So we've had to take steps step similar to other uh, universities. Now, of course, all of our students are, are professional students. We have medical students, dental students, right. graduate students, and public health students. And the first thing we had to do, as was done by other universities, we flipped the classroom so that all of our didactic instruction was done uh, over the internet. So the, the professors captured their lectures on video and the students could watch them at their leisure. And then they were having uh, Zoom-like meetings to do discussions, but that was done almost immediately because the students could not gather anymore. The other thing that had to happen was medical students who are on clinical rotations had to come back to Meharry because the hospitals were not allowing trainees to be in the hospitals given the, the high burden, the high volume of COVID-19 patients. And not to mention the students would take away precious PPE from the medical professionals. A more, uh, even more dramatic impact was in a dental school because as you know, dentistry was practically shut down by uh, COVID-19 because dentists by doing what they do make aerosols It's a part of doing dentistry, you create aerosols. And of course, that creates a huge uh, infection risk. So for the last several weeks, um, dentist shop, dentist clinics all over the country for the, for the most part have been shut down. And that's a burden for our, med our dental students because they need a certain number of clinical experiences and types of procedures before they can graduate. So we're scrambling to try to figure out how we're gonna make sure those students can get those experiences and you know, get on with their careers. So it, was, it had a profound impact on all of our programs, but we tried to respond in similar ways to other professional schools around the country. Uh, well, that, that's, that's good to know. And I'm really proud of Meharry, you know, uh, growing up practically on that campus. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah. My, my mother worked at Fisk. She worked at Meharry first, and she worked at Fisk. And I lived on Marina Street, uh, all of my adolescence. Yeah, all of my adolescence. So um, I was, you know, and I, I have some relatives who are Meharry alumni as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm very proud of that. I, I wonder, after hearing you talk about the, the breakthrough of, in, in terms of, of science and research at, at this stage, you know, I, I know people come to school to study for different reasons, but I, I, I would imagine that, and I guess you would like this too, um, more students would be inspired to follow in your footsteps and to do this kind of research, don't, don't you think? 
I hope so. I think uh, I tell people that for me, there's nothing more exciting than having been in science and watching how far we've come. You know, I've been studying HIV since 1986. And, you know, it, we first knew about HIV in 1981. That's when the first cases were identified. That's 39 years ago. And for example, we don't have a vaccine, <laughs> even though billions of dollars have been spent and many, many scientists have tackled this problem. We still don't have a vaccine. That's why I'm being a little bit cautious about being too excited about having a vaccine uh, for this virus, because we have examples where despite the best efforts of really brilliant scientists, we don't have that yet. Um, but to me, there's nothing more exciting than posing a question uh, that's never been answered before. And when I talk to young people, I just, I tell them, imagine being in the laboratory and you just finished an experiment and your controls look good, everything looks good. So you know something that has never been known before. And until you sell somebody, you're the only human being who's ever lived who knows this. Now you tell me what could be more exciting <laughs> than that. Indeed. That you as a single human being know something or have discovered something that's never been known before. And if you're in the laboratory alone, like I've been many times, uh, with the experimental results in your hands, I don't know. I just, it's a pretty cool feeling. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the things that disturbs me, Mark, is that people don't seem to be taking the science here seriously. That we're not asking people to disrupt their whole lives and turn the whole world upside down for trivial reasons. Uh, this is based on some pretty well-established science and the science is moving fast. If, I think if people would just trust the science in the COVID-19 pandemic as much as we trust it in our daily lives. We take, this, we take things for granted that have been made possible by some incredible science. And mm. that's, that same science is gonna get us through this problem. And it just disturbs me a little bit that people don't really, you know, take into account the science that's underpinning all of this. Uh, because this, this is a serious problem. And if we don't do something about it, if we don't do the things that we've done, literally millions of people could die. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dr. Hildreth, um, you mentioned the feeling a, a student will get in that situation. I, I speak for a lot of people, and I mean a lot of people. Uh, when I say that you give us all a very good feeling. Um, you know, we've been talking about the disproportionate way this has impacted African-Americans. And I was saying to people, you know, we have African-Americans who are doctors and scientists and researchers and immunologists that can, that can talk about this and help deal with this. And I think it's comforting for people, um, more than comforting, to know that you're on the case. So, and then the Harry's on the case. And that makes us all very, very proud, my friend. I so appreciate I, that. So I, I thank you for all you're doing. And uh, anyway, uh, I can continue to be supportive or all of us can be. Just let us know, okay? Mark, thank you so much. I really do appreciate that. All right. Thank you. Dr. James Hildreth, folks. He's the president of Meharry Medical College. Thank you, Dr. Hildreth. Thank you. All Peace right. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been made plain.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.